Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, I'm uh, the president of FEPS, uh, Foundation for European Progressive Studies, and I'm here in uh, Brussels just after a great conference we run with our American friends, sponsored by German Marshall Fund. Uh, and involving the president of the uh, CAP, Center for American Progress. Um, let me just tell you something briefly about myself. I'm a, a politician and a policymaker uh, with a large experience in European Parliament, European Commission, and Council of Ministers, and European Council. And now I'm so pleased to be here with Dira Tandem who also a remarkable American uh, policymaker with a long, long uh, backtrack in uh, <laughs> democratic uh, administrations, uh, democratic campaigns, winning campaigns, and now the president of the Center American Progress, the most outstanding progressive think tank uh, in Washington and, in fact, in the United States. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really uh, excited to be here with you. The conference today was uh, excellent, and I learned a lot about how Europeans perceive American politics and about uh, about Europe and its politics. And I'm pleased to represent the Center for American Progress. And Center for American Progress is a progressive think tank in Washington, and we have longstanding relationships with progressive partners in in Europe, including FEPS. Uh, we work closely on international issues, and uh, but also work uh, on domestic issues uh, and share learning with our European partners about the trends that we see in the United States and around the globe. Nira, um, let me start our talk by asking something all European citizens are willing to know about is what might happen uh, with these new American elections. <laughs> what are the possible scenarios? Ah, I, I think the scenarios range from uh, a close election that, Trump, that uh, President Trump wins in re-election and all the way to a large, uh, significant victory for the Democrats. Uh, The United States is very polarized, as I'm sure uh, everyone knows. But what's interesting about American politics is that uh, Trump is polarizing, but he has a large majority, uh, generally speaking, in opposition to him. So his support is roughly 40% of the country, and his opposition is roughly 50 to 55% of the country. And uh, we, re we just had elections local elections in very conservative states in the United States. And in many of those elections, Democrats won, which I think is a, a sign of challenge for, the, for Trump because even some of his party uh, turned and voted, uh, switched parties and voted for Democrats. And uh, so what are the chances for Democrats to have... A victory. It depends on what. Uh, I think a central issue is who will be the Democratic nominee. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump has a, a clear strategy, and that is to um, 
uh, malign the Democratic, uh, the Democratic nominee, whoever that is. Uh, he already maligns uh, various candidates. Uh, and I think what's interesting about our, our primary electorate right now, which is, has, remains a very large field from Joe Biden all the way to Bernie Sanders with multiple candidates representing different geographies. Uh, we have a the most diverse range of candidates with multiple candidates uh, of color. So many women, not just one woman, but many women running. Um, but I think there's there's various lenses to look at the at the uh, Democratic primary, and one is ideology. So uh, there's a contest between uh, sort of the hard left or very left candidates versus more liberal candidates, more of the more of the center. Uh, but there's also uh, variances on um, generational change. Many of the candidates are of Trump's generation, uh, and there's a range of ne next generation candidates, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. And then finally, I think the a central question that is permeating, and perhaps the most important question is, what is the strategy to win? Electability, we talked about this in the conference today, electability is the central concern of Democratic voters because they um, are so deeply opposed to Trump and everything he stands for. They desperately want a candidate who can win. And there are various arguments about that, So about what the channel for victory is. One is to put together a broad coalition um, that attracts both moderate and liberal voters. Another is to have a very liberal agenda that can mobilize the base. So I think, and there are different permutations. Pete Buttigieg is a next generation candidate, but he has arguments, uh, and he's more moderate, but he has arguments that are sort of critical of Joe Biden. It's a very, it's very fluid, but we will decide, uh, all of these issues will be decided uh, starting in February in the United States. But uh, who are the kind of people who can be part of these uh, large majority? Mm. What kind of people? That's a great question. So what we've seen in the in our midterm elections and in our elections and our most recent elections, so we've had a series of elections over the last three years, and actually you see Democrats winning even in Republican-leaning areas, congressional districts, states. In fact, in 2018, Democrats won back the governorships in the Midwest states that Hillary had lost. And that the coalition they've put together is attracting new voters. But those new voters, uh, these are non-traditional Democratic voters. They're voters who used to vote Republican. Um, they're in the suburbs, and they're very much uh, lots of white women who went to college. In fact, white women who've gone to college are now sort of the resistance in the United States. They They are not only voting, they're activating. They're engaging in campaigns, they're calling members of Congress, they're organizing at their local level, which is very exciting, and they can, they can have the possibility of changing politics for a long time to come. Uh, the, a group that used to be in the Democratic Party 20 years ago, um, white non-college educated voters, have shifted considerably to Republicans. But one group of, amongst that has has come back a little bit. So white non-college women voted for Barack Obama at 
and then voted for Hillary at 35%, which was a terrible degradation of that vote. But in the last couple of years, in 2018, they came, they voted around 50-50 for Democrats in the Midwest. So that is an important swing group that uh, of Trump voters who voted for Trump and now voted for, and, and had then since shifted. In fact, in 2018, over four and a half million voters voted for Donald Trump and then voted for a House Democrat. So there's a new coalition, which is made up not only of the base of the Democratic Party, um, you know, millennials, people of color, uh, but now includes really uh, sort of the professional professional class of white voters, and they are urban and suburban. And so a big area in the country, suburban areas, have really shifted to the Democratic Party, I think in opposition to Trump's divisive politics. What explain this shift? What are the the issues? Yeah, so... Issues in the the debates, which... So, uh, you know, white college-educated voters in the United States, particularly women, are very alienated by Trump's attacks on minority groups, his misogyny, um, you know, which is rampant, rule of law issues, undermining democracy, attacks on the press, and overall poor character. And what's interesting, you know, in America, we've often thought, um, you know, it's the economy stupid, economic issues are paramount. But these voters are doing very well in Trump's economy and are still incredibly alienated by him. And it's interesting. It's You see a big move of women, but men have moved too. In 2012, uh, white college-educated men voted 60, 60%, 65% for Mitt Romney. Now they're much closer to 50-50. Mm-hmm. So both groups, men and women amongst college-educated, have shifted white uh, and Democrats have real challenges with white non-college educated voters, but there are real opportunities there as well. Uh, so this means that all of a sudden you have, uh, let's say, uh, social economic issues which still play a role, but other kind of issues such as these the people just don't feel identified with this president because of his character, no? Yeah, this is, uh, I think... disgusting for them <laughs> somehow, no? Yeah, no, I think actually, and uh, this was mentioned today, I think there's a values conversation. Mm -hmm. So they don't, you know, a lot of voters are repulsed or angered by Trump's values. And, And I think, you know, and issues like America's role in the world and our repudiation of our allies do play into some of these issues. So I think on the Democratic side, there's a robust debate actually on health care and economic policy, but actually on foreign policy um, and the need to restore our alliances in the world. There's agreement from Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. and, uh, and a deep criticism, particularly of Trump's undermining of democracy. I think the issue, the salience of democratic institutions and his attacks on democracy at the um, democracy uh, in, in America is translating to a renewed invigoration of uh, democratic principles and actually support of uh, alliances with democracies themselves. And I think that's a, you know, something to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this issue for us Europeans is very important. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you uh, probably a difficult uh, question is how are 
Americans perceiving Europe now? How can we, of course, they are very focused on their internal debate and so on, but still, what is the, the perception they have about Europe? So my take is, you know, what's really interesting is the most important issue in American politics that permeates everything is Trump himself and his ability to create um, create deep fissures on issues. So I'll give an example, and I'll come to Europe in a second. During the during the last year of Barack Obama's presidency, he uh, support for the Paris Accords, the Paris Climate Accords, was about 50-50. It should have been higher, but it was around 50-50. Then Trump comes in and exits Paris, and support moves to 60% support for Paris, 40%, 35% opposed Paris. Similarly, and that, that's been true on a range of issues, gun issues, they used to be sort of polarized, now a majority supports them. Um, healthcare policies, you know, there's a majority that has formed against it, and you see it even with impeachment now. Strong, now strong majorities think Trump has done something wrong because he does, he does create a backlash. So it's interesting about Europe, and I think this is a real moment that should be captured by the transatlantic relationship, which is his attacks on Europe, his you know his denigration of Europe, which is I, I must say embarrassing for many Americans. I think has actually strengthened um, an understanding of why Europe's important. So there's greater support for NATO today than there was. There's more appreciation. Again, Americans are very much domestically focused, but to the extent they think of these issues, and we've done extensive research and polling on this, they would like America to both lead through its alliances, be respected by our allies, and perhaps shoulder a little less burden for not NATO or issues like that, but just the world's problems. But I think the way to address that is to you know, is for us in the future to demonstrate more effectively why those alliances serve both countries or all of our countries together. And I think that's a real opportunity. Mm-hmm. And look, um, one of the questions we are talking about is uh, what is at the end of the day common between uh, American citizens and European citizens? Mm-hmm. Because both of us, we have recently come from hard times after the, the financial Global crisis. crisis. Um, and we understood that uh, we are dealing with uh, the impact of a, a kind of a, a very controversial agenda driven by the financial interests. And in, in face of these, we are confronted with another kind of message, which I will call populist, sometimes yeah. uh, sovereignist, saying, well, uh, what we need to do to protect ourselves from these uh, uh, pressures from the, the financial world, but, but also from the uh, trade, is somehow to protect our borders and so on. Mm-hmm. Our discussion here in Europe is that uh, we don't want this um, completely open world without rules and without standards, mm-hmm. but we also don't think that closing the borders will be the solution. Mm-hmm. So somehow yeah. we would like to keep an open world, but uh, improving our standards, our social standards, our uh, environmental standards, and so on. Mm-hmm. So don't you think there is uh, a, a possible connection between yes. this and uh, the position taken by Democrats? And 
yes, I, w- I would agree. And I think, I think actually what's fascinating about this moment from my perspective is for all the nationalism we see, both in Europe and in the United States and around the world, there's a rise of hyper-nationalism. The truth is that there is a, a real convergence of interests amongst peoples across borders. So from my perspective, just to build on what you said, if you really think about what's happening in the world, there is a, there is a deep debate we see between an authoritarian state model and a democratic state model. And that debate is one that is between the United States from one end and and China on the other. But the truth is that that's not a debate just with the United States. It's a U.S. debate. It's a, it's a Europe debate. And from our perspective, the, the 21st century will really be a competition between these two models in a global scale, arguing which is most effective to produce the good for their publics. And China... You know, we have a big debate about Russia, but the true issue is China is arguing on the global stage that its authoritarian market model delivers more good for more people. This debate is very ripe in Asia, but it's traveling to Africa, it's traveling around the world. And and from our perspective, it is more important at this moment in time for the U.S. and our European allies, as well as other democracies, to recognize that we we have we have shared values. Those values are about producing the most good for the most people. We have we believe in a capitalist system, but it needs to be regulated to produce results, better results for people. And the true challenge across Europe and the U.S. in in real ways in the in the U.S. is in many ways behind Europe in this, is that the rising levels of inequality are producing um, a, a questioning, a distrust of our institution's ability to solve these challenges. And that is why we need to reform our institutions to produce better results for our publics so that we can, we can make the case um, on the global scale, but really and domestically, that democracies still produce the best results. And the truth is the U.S. and Europe are facing, uh, and countries within Europe are facing attacks on democracy from authoritarians who use the tools of democracy to undermine them. undermine. And so my hope is that there will be a reaction. My, my deepest hope for 2020 in the United States is that we have spent these four years looking at the abyss in the United States of what an authoritarian populist means, not just for particular policy issues, but democracy itself and our ability to stand true to principles of democracy, which is protections of minority rights, protections for the rule of law. And in our country, those questions are as intention as ever. But my hope is that in, in about a year from now, the United States will have looked at this moment and said, as we have in other periods of conflict, that we want to uh, turn away and build a better, more democratic country. And that is possible if we do the hard work over the next year. Mm-hmm. Well, this is uh, really very uh, encouraging if we have the chance to move in this direction, United States. 
let me tell you something about hmm? um, the European side. Of course, we are still organizing our political system for the next uh, five years, but it is quite likely that uh, Europe um, will deal with the, the world, in, in, let's say, in, in two uh, fronts. One has to do with security, peace and security and, and defense. And on these, as you know, we are developing now a European defense capacity, but which needs to be envisaged as a complement of NATO. So we are yes. fully committed with our NATO engagement. But the other front for us is to cooperate across the world with all the partners who want to tackle common challenges, mm -hmm. be it climate, uh, open trade with better standards, um, making uh, the best of the, the digital tra transformation, um, tackling issues of poverty and sustainable development uh, goals across the world. So my question is, sometimes we are um, really regretting that we cannot count so strongly with the United States. Yeah, and next I regret time, that too. <laughs> A big coincidence that, of course, American elections, but also uh, a discussion which will be on the table of the United Nations system, which is the reform of the multilateral system. Yeah. And we Europeans would like to say, well, yes, we need uh, to, to, uh, um, to develop the multilateral uh, approach to tackle these new challenges. Mm -hmm. So um, my, this is part of my wish list now. <laughs> if we have a victory of uh, Democrats, do you think that we can uh, count as strongly with the United States for a joint work in these different areas? In fact, I think that one of the salient issues in the next election, more so than it has been in past elections, will be the impact of Trump's foreign policy and how it is limiting America's global leadership and America's ability to protect its interests. I think, frankly, what has happened over the last month or so in Syria is a searing example to Americans of a loss of American leadership, a loss of American leadership in the Middle East, but also the message that it is sending to allies. And, you know, as we talk about this, the, the part of a global competition with China means that you have to recognize that your competitor will exploit weaknesses. So if the United States is, I, the Chinese are making an argument that democracies are unreliable, that they are much more reliable as a country because they can plan long term. And then actions like what's happened in Syria demonstrate the case that they are making and undermine American leadership. I think, I, I, I know that Americans are often inward looking, but they are anxious about uh, an, a lack of leadership in the world. And they do question why uh, Trump is, has more affinity for uh, Putin <laughs> and Erdogan than Angela Merkel and, or Macron. And so a, a, I'm sure a question many Europeans ask themselves as well, but they should rest assured that Americans ask that same question. So I actually think that the United States will very much focus. The, I think the Democratic candidates will focus on that 
the need to restore American leadership. And hopefully if they're elected, if, uh, if a Democrat is elected, she or he will make the case, uh, will restore that America's leadership and the importance of our partnerships uh, and our work working in concerted action, not just on climate, but what we have worked on in the past on Iran and a whole series of issues. Because again, democracies are converging on the problems we have, our, our, the need to address issues like trade and uh, the multilateral system and restore those are really important as well. Nira, many thanks for your insights. So let's see what happens uh, over the next period. But definitely it's so important that uh, we can go on working together. And many thanks again for uh, this talk. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.